Hello all, and welcome to another episode of Mangum Talks. We're back with Mangum Reads. This is Spencer, and I'm here, of course, with BJ. BJ, how's it going? It's going pretty well, Spencer. How's your, uh, well, I know how your last day has been, but how has your week or week and a half since we last recorded been? Oh, more fun forays with the law, in all sense of the word. Fair enough. As I've joked with you before, I spent a large portion of last week looking at different angles of a dented fire truck, which the four-year-old me would have been overjoyed to find I'd get paid for that, but modern me was not quite as enthused. I thought it was multiple fire trucks. I didn't realize it was just uh, one fire truck and multiple angles. It was the same fire truck of where the firemen needed to get to a fire, saw a lot of cars parked illegally, and thought, move, bitch, get out of the way, and then documented the damage that he primarily did to other vehicles with his truck. Ah, well, that works. Mostly for the purpose of suing them to repair the damages to his truck, which I, I do still love that concept. That is pretty glorious. But this week, uh, on Magnum Reads, we'd like to kind of jump between different parts of the spectrum when it comes to literature. The last few weeks, we've been covering what was essentially a bit of a farcical comedy, a kind of poking fun or relying on the various tropes that are common in the fantasy setting with Terry Pratchett. Uh, I had recommended something that I thought was completely different. BJ, in terms of just purely something completely different, did I succeed this week? I, I think you very much succeeded. Um, I, I wouldn't say, I think, I feel like you're trying to almost make a Monty Python reference and now for something completely different and it would have been better, you know, with our last entry, but you know, for this entry, yes, you very much succeeded in doing, uh, something particularly different. I do really appreciate you caught that. I want to just harken back to all the Monty Python jokes we were making last week. But for this week, I recommended A Monster Calls by Patrick Ness, which is a recently highly regarded and highly rewarded work by um, this American-British writer. It officially is categorized as being children's young adult, but it is one of those books that while I can understand why it is put in that category, because it doesn't really fit neatly elsewhere, it is misleading to a great degree. It'd be like a children's book if you were kind of smushing together the Brothers, the brothers Grimm with a healthy dose of Pan's Labyrinth, which, if that sounds like something you want to read your children to every night, power to you, but it might leave them a little bit traumatized in the experience. I think that the idea behind this book, and, and I feel like it is very much a, a young adult fantasy book, sort of comes with a tagline, and I feel like that tagline sort of really can inform whether somebody wants to read it or not, or, or read it to their children. Um, and then we'll probably get into this a lot more later, but I think the morals of the story are a little bit questionable. But I do have a question for you, because oh, the title is a, is a Monster Calls, and it was an idea by, and it gives a name, that I have no idea how it's supposed to be pronounced. Did you... I, your, your guess is as good as mine. Okay. I, I know that she um, was the writer who originally came up with the idea for the book, but had died before she'd been able to successfully get it published. Okay. Um, and had worked with and some Patrick Ness to uh, have him pick up the torch so that the idea could be eventually brought to the world. But in terms of how you pronounce her name or much about her, I don't know much more than the book tells me. Okay, so it's S-I-O-B-H-A-N... Dowd, I assume, is is her last name, which is relatively straightforward. Mm -hmm. 
but but yeah, this might want to be one of the uh, Irish or Scottish things that you know maybe we could look up. But I figured that you might know, given that you had a recommendation from a friend that might have been like, oh, it's from this author, blah blah blah, Dowd, and and she does all kinds of things. No. Um, my prior exposure to Patrick Ness in this book was basically zilch of where a friend sent me this for Christmas back. in I think it was 2012, like it's about a year after it came out and she said, please read it. It's great. Whatever else. And so the day after Christmas, I started reading this book with my family confused why I was sobbing quietly in the corner while they were celebrating Christmas festivities. Gotcha. Wasn't, wasn't necessarily the best book to keep me in the Christmas spirit, but you know, I appreciated it for what it was. But as you talked about, it is, I would agree that it is a young adult book, but it's a young adult, young adult book with a very specific purpose. Of where yeah. it, its character, its main character, um, Connor, is himself a young adult, 13 years old. But as a result of his experiences and a result about what, about what he's about to weather, he's been forced to confront decidedly adult themes in a decidedly adult world and act far beyond his years as a result of everything that he's had to take up because of what's been taken away from him. See, I have a disagreement already. Like, I don't think he acts beyond his years. But I get that there's pressure. Well, that's not true. It, it talks about that, that that he, you know, has to take upon responsibilities that he wouldn't otherwise. And um, I was actually just looking up, and I still don't know how to pronounce her name, but we're going to say Sjoban, or Sjoban. It's probably, the, I bet it, the BH is a V, just like Bonahaven. I bet it's like Siovan Dowd. Possibly, yes. She uh, had severe breast cancer. Yeah, I, I, I wonder how much that informed this work. Yeah, I'm, I'm betting that that, that might have played a, a serious role in her, her thoughts and, and idea behind the book, and she didn't quite get to finish. And I would agree that I would not say that he acts like an adult. I think he's expected in some ways, or he's been forced to play the role of an adult, but doesn't have the maturity to fully pull it off. And that it really plays out in a lot of the stories and a lot of the experiences that he goes through. That he's, in it. it'd be a struggle for an adult to fully go through the emotional upheaval that he has to, of course, this novel to really come to terms with what he's experiencing. But as a 13-year-old boy, as much as he's, you know, thinking that he can care for himself and has been in some ways caring for himself, he's not emotionally well-equipped to weather the storm that's coming. Yeah, not at all. Um, and I feel like we're sort of dancing around the the various plot points, so I feel like, we, you know, maybe we should actually get into to the book yeah, and the yeah, plot yeah. So, so we're not uh, dancing around and we can just spoil it for everybody that hasn't... Uh, fine, ready. fine, fine. Force order on our, our creativity. Do as you wish. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... Well, uh, you introduce our, our main character, Connor, um, who's a schoolboy, I assume, somewhere in the UK. I don't remember if it actually said where he is. Um, but basically, um, he's dealing with his mother having cancer. And as she, at, throughout the book, he basically has to take care of her and take care of himself with, you know, preparing food and and making sure the laundry gets done, sort of all the household menial tasks that he can as she's going through presumably her chemotherapy. And this has been going on long enough that he really even knows how she reacts to the, the chemo drugs. And so, you know, he knows that, you know, the first day is sort of okay, the second day, the second day is bad, and then, you know, it gets worse on like the two days after her treatment. 
and he's you know is getting used to like bringing over a barf bucket for when she gets nauseous and and sort of is really taking up the mantle of her uh caretaker as best he can and basically it talks a little bit about how he has sort of stepped up to the plate in terms of both his and his mother's care as best he can as essentially a very young teenager. Right. It makes for an interesting setting. So many other works focus on like the original follow the characters is that before they go through the diagnosis and then how they go through it afterwards, like following the story completely. This jumps in about a year after she's already started going through treatment. Or as you said, it's already become so routine for him that one example I loved is that he'd already developed a tendency to speaking softly whenever he went to every room just in case she was asleep, just because he's so used to her already being exhausted and lethargic as a result of her treatment, that preparing his breakfast in the morning, getting himself ready, counting the minutes until he needs to go to school by himself as he's long since going used to it, just become routine. Um, makes for an interesting starting point that we're kind of emerging into the story very much, I wouldn't even say halfway, we've kind of entered the story near, pretty near to the end. Yeah, I mean, he's basically, you, you don't get any of that development where he's trying to uh, shoulder these responsibilities or get used to them or, or anything else. And um, I think it sort of really speaks to maybe the lack of character development that we sort of have. Um, for most of the characters that were already past those character developing steps and mm-hmm. were just thrown into, as you said, sort of the end game of, you know, we're already well into a cancer diagnosis and treatment and the struggles that, that Connor has had to overcome to make it to this point. point. Right. And I think it, giving us that setting kind of gives us a bit of an insight into the character because having us just emerge middle of the way through and having having a bit of a foundering effect in terms of catching up is likely mirroring what his are his own experiences in terms of dealing with this. That as as we go through over the course of the story, as much as there are other people around him, as much as other people are intentionally trying to establish a connection with him, this is a very lonely boy. This is a boy that feels very much as if he has become invisible to the world, as one of the stories go into, and isolated from it. Um, and it actually sort of reminds me of something that, that you said uh, when we were talking this weekend is you're never so lonely as when other people are watching you. Yeah. And his loneliness is really brought into effect because of how the people around him act towards him and how they maintain a relationship with him. Um, and I, I feel like there are a couple of highlights of uh, his relationship throughout the, the book, um, basically as he continues to go to school and, and deal with uh, basically his day-to-day life, which is immensely depressing. Oh, yeah. And just to get into how the story progresses, because we'll see this through each of the stories that occurs, uh, the book opens very much with the monster's introduction of where Connor is in his room and isn't alone and he has a nightmare. The nightmare. The nightmare that he always has. The one that's been torturing him apparently every single night for who knows how long. But the book does a pretty good job of keeping what the actual details of the nightmare are secret from us for quite a long time. But as he looks out his window, he sees this yew tree, which it's very... 
This book is very distinctly British in terms of um, some of the iconography and themes that it ties to. And one of them is just the, the fact that the monster itself appears to be an animated yew tree, which is um, a tree that is tied to many aspects of British culture dating back to the pagan era, extending through the fact in the medieval era that it was the primary source of their main weapon of war, the, British, the uh, English longbow. <laughs> I knew you were going to bring that up. For some reason, Like I knew you would have that knowledge in your back pocket, and it's actually funny enough something that I knew about um, through woodworking and things like that. But like, I just, I was like, oh, I should probably talk about, you know, longbow, the longbowman and, and the yew tree. Spencer will probably cover that. It, it, it is important. It ties into how very much British this is, and that if you go to various um, churchyards around Britain, there is a yew tree. It is very customary. It is very expected. And some of these trees can be, I think the oldest one in Britain is like 3,000 years old. So... They've got a lot of history. They've got a lot of tie-ins to the cultures. They're associated with the original pagan, uh, Celtic, and British, and later Anglo-Saxon inhabitants. But yep, as you um, look, um, as I, th- you I think it plays also into sort of the fairy tales, like you and Rowan and Holly are uh, supposed to have sort of mystical powers with the fae. I mean, the idea yep. that we have, uh, the idea that we associate, you know, holly berries and everything else with Christmas just shows how much we are continuing the old pagan traditions under a different style. Um, but in terms of this, he's looking out the window, dealing with the after effects of his nightmare, when suddenly something starts calling to him. As he looks at... at 12.07 a.m. What would you say? At 12.07 a.m. Which is a consistent number which appears throughout this entire text of where that is the the witching hour of when this monster appears. Ewing hour, you might say. Oh, dear Lord. Um, as he's looking over the ridge, he sees this tree essentially animate and reappear in front of his window and slowly before his eyes rework itself into this monstrous, to any other person but Connor, terrifying creature. But initial very revealing moment about the boy is that he is utterly unafraid of this monster that has come calling at his door. That if anything else, he's disappointed. Yeah, I would say that, you know, it it really speaks to emotional exhaustion where people basically get emotional fatigue when they're dealing with things that are uh, in one direction. Like, I don't know that it really matters what direction that is. But if you're constantly undergoing any particular emotion, that something that would normally elicit a reaction in that direction no longer elicits the the normal reaction that you might have, be it sadness or anger or, sure. or even happiness. You know, if you're having a grand old time and it, some some awesome stuff's going on, and then something that you know in your normal life would be super exciting and super fun happens in that small period of time, then it's like, oh yeah, that was like all in, all in a lot of other cool stuff that I was doing, mm-hmm. but you know, it wasn't something super amazing. Whereas, you know, if you have like a normal baseline to compare it to, it would be really amazing. And, you know, I think the same is true negatively, where, you know, he's been dealing with all these negative emotions, sadness and fear and anger, and he's just coming off of this terrible nightmare where something that might normally frighten him isn't really that that interesting at this point because he's dealing with this other nightmare on a repeated basis. 
and we see over the course of this novel, we see Connor display incredible anger, incredible rage, a rain of emotions. But his baseline is a very flat affect of where throughout this book, as you said, this kid has already been beaten down. He's weathered a year or more of this. And as a result, everything that he experiences has a certain muted attachment to it. The monster in many ways is almost put off confused that he's already been through so much that this boy is utterly unafraid of him to the point that it's a bit shocked and determined to kind of shock him out of this before it even starts. Which I I think starts pointing towards the fact that this creature may not be the, the nightmare that it sort of purports to be that, you know, it's trying, it, it recognizes that this flat affect of his is, is the problem, and it tries to break him out of that shell. And it's an important thing that we'll debate over the course of this episode and likely the next one as we talk about this book, but the book really likes flirting with the concept of magical realism, before it's left willfully ambiguous and debatable whether this monster actually exists or whether it is merely an aspect of Connor personified, whether he's pulled a part of himself out and made, and made it as if it was real. And maybe... I would also say that maybe, you know, maybe it's real and, and that, that that's the fantasy. But on the other side, maybe it's covering for other things that mm-hmm. happened to him, but he can't process them. And Fair so um, I think the part that you might be about to get to is after he has this interaction with the yew tree and he wakes up, he finds leaves from the yew tree in his bedroom. Mm-hmm. And he rushes to clean them up because he doesn't want to have to try and explain them. And, you know, he puts them in the garbage um, under some other stuff. And as is his normal routine, he takes the garbage out. And I sort of wonder if this is maybe him having some sort of reaction, like, you know, wetting the bed or something like that. And he doesn't want to deal with it. And so he basically in his mind decides that it's, leaves from the tree that he has to get rid of and mm-hmm. he disposes of it in a very normal way but essentially covers it up in his mind with this nightmare that he's having it's very possible i mean if we interpret him literally there's events that occur over the course of this novel that can't be explained without some kind of magical attachment to it if we trust the account that we're getting through his eyes the question of but the reliable we- narrator Yeah, but we have no reason to necessarily trust him. We have no reason to believe that what we're seeing, what we're depicting, is either a complete picture or an accurate picture. And so we're kind of left to guess. I mean, just as like I mentioned Pan's Labyrinth, and I was a big fan of magical realism in Spanish literature growing up, and so I like some of the aspects of it that's brought in this. But part of the joy of it is you're never quite sure whether the world is is as magical as we're seeing through the eyes of the character, or whether... We are truly just seeing a magical world through the eyes of the character. Um, that reminds me of a Deep Space Nine episode that I really liked, um, but apparently some of the writers wanted to take a little bit too far for my taste. Um, <laughs> Which one? It, oh man, I don't remember what it was called, but it was basically an episode where um, all of the main characters are science fiction writers in like the sixties and, uh, Cisco has another name and I don't remember what the name of his author is, is a science fiction writer in a uh, company and he wants to write this book about a black protagonist 
who's essentially the captain of a starship, and all of Deep Space Nine is his writing and his imagining of this world of Star Trek. Hmm. Basically, the head of the um, publish, the head publisher or the head of the the publishing uh, company, basically wants him to change the main character so he's not black because. Um, might have even been earlier than the 60s, but it was sort of at a time when having a black main character like that wasn't acceptable to the readers. It basically ends up with um, this writer being thrown into an insane asylum, and you see him writing in pencil all along the walls. (laughs) And... You know, then it sort of goes back and forth between what's happening in uh, Deep Space Nine and, you know, some visions that that the uh, Cisco is having. And basically it sort of bl- blurs that line between different realities. You know, is the science fiction reality the real one or the writing one or, or you know, the writer in the 50s or 60s the real one? And you sort of know because it's Star Trek, you know which one's the real one. Um, and apparently the writers really wanted to have the last episode of Deep Space Nine end with him in the asylum. I get, were they afraid their audience wouldn't go that far with them? It was much more that in the, the Star Trek universe that, you know, it's canon that it actually exists. And so, you know, it would have been a little bit too much of a departure from Star Trek to just say Star Trek doesn't exist and it's basically in this one author's mind, um, was one of the main counterpoints. Also, you know, it probably would have fallen flat for a lot of the audience. Well, for this one, it doesn't go so fully far as to have us wonder whether anything is occurring. It just leaves it in question what's causing it. As Connor, over the course of this book, will see and do things seemingly under the direction, the command, and the summoning of the monster— but uh, to the world, but to the world around, it is, is as if Connor himself is doing every deed himself. Well, okay, but I feel like there are things like the leaves, and then in his next episode, there's a uh, sapling that grows uh, from the base. Yeah, leaves, berries, sapling. I think it was the way it was the order it goes. Um, okay, so I mean, I guess sort of at that point, I think it's less of a question of you know. It's not something that he's doing. Like, you know, I, I guess I don't picture it as he could actually have somehow grown a sapling. No, but uh, but as you as you offered, what is he act, what what actually is occurring that he's put this in the place of? Yeah, the the one thing that I thought of, I think, is a little bit too far for for the writer, which is I, I think the obvious explanation of Morningwood was a little bit too on point and too a little too weird. Yeah, I, I I pondered that as a possible explanation for it, but I, it seems too inconsistent with the with the with the rest of the themes of the book. Yeah, um, I mean, I think in general it's it's the him dealing with life, but I could also see that being maybe the seeds and and the 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 sapling being like a kind of like how do you deal with the normal hormonal hormonal maturation of a young teenager with you know the terrible things that he's undergoing his best friend who's female that he basically can't deal with and Mm -hmm. i feel like that that could have been sort of hints at it but i guess i don't really know what they would be otherwise other than just it's magic so 
many interpretations possible. One of, after this first encounter with the monster, we see as we talked about him preparing to go to school and being as quiet as possible to avoid disturbing his mom. But she wakes, and we see from very early on a kind of consistent theme that runs through a lot of the people that are interacting with Connor, of where his mom in particular, very much out of love, is desperately trying to shield him from what she's going through. Um, she's constantly conditioning any statement of like, oh, well, your grandmother is going to come, um, just, but just for a few days. And, you know, we're on a new treatment, and of course, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. And what's really interesting is that every time, every time one of the characters, his mom, his dad, various teachers, friends, kind of try to do this kid gloves effect with him, trying to shield him from what's actually about to occur, from the full scale of what's going on, Connor consistently pushes back at it, where he consistently second-guesses them. He consistently asks them, are you sure? Uh, is it really only going to be for a couple days? Are you sure this treatment's working? Is this almost as if he's desperate for them to be honest with him, because... Well, we've debated over the course of the story whether he's being fully honest with himself, whether he's fully accepted them, fully accepted what's going on, but he seems, when he's interacting with those people, really to desire for them to not isolate him, to not try to shield him from what's occurring. Well, uh, but I, I, I don't know. I, I, I feel like his interaction with his mom about his grandmother is he wants to isolate basically himself and his mother, which I thought was a little weird. Um, it's like, are you sure it's only for a couple of days? Cause I don't want her around. Like we're fine. Just the two of us. Uh -huh. And I mean, I sort of understand him being jealous of the time with his mother, but it also seems kind of like he doesn't want anything to change. And right. if part of that is, you know, he wants his mom to be fine. And part of it is the the denial of what's happening i think is partly he wants to keep things the same rather than he wants the truth because if he wanted the truth it'd be like well why is you know grandma coming to stay with us rather than are you sure we need her like we're doing fine by ourselves okay um from that man we'll meet his grandmother here in a bit but from there he goes to school and his school life is, is hellish for two different reasons. One, he's got one a hell of a bully who is a master sadist in terms of how he's targeting Connor and what he's inflicting upon Connor. But almost what hurts more to Connor is, as you said, he's desperate for everything to be normal, to be real. And the school is doing everything in its power to not treat him as if everything is normal and everything is real. Yeah. Um, basically, all his, his teachers and all of the... Um, administration, sort of like, are you doing okay? And and sort of let him get away with not doing his homework or acting out a little bit and are just like, well, we understand what you're going through and if you need some time, which is definitely not he, what he wants. No. Um, and then I think the third thing is his relationship with presumably his best friend. Um, Lily. Yeah, and basically he's intensely angry with her because um basically Lola and his, her mother are the closest friends that Connor and his mother have and so 
they found out about his mother's diagnosis, and then it was spread throughout the school, and he blames, well, everybody for it getting out, and so sort of like, you know, why why would you think that it wouldn't? But like, I sort of get that, like in that mindset that he, he feels like he's coping. He feels like he's just sort of plotting forward and now everybody's treating him differently and sort of distancing themselves from him. And the only thing that he can do is sort of blame somebody else because otherwise he sort of has to deal with the reality that he's going, he's undergoing something terrible. Lily is a very good friend. I think the novel makes very clear that she is desperate to try to support him and be close to him and remain a friend to him despite every effort that he makes to push her away. But as you said, as part of his depression, as part of the fact that he's just desperate to keep going, to keep things as normal as possible, as long as possible, the fact that she's trying to be supportive and the fact that she told everyone and made it so that he could no longer keep the illusion going is... um, something that he clearly struggles and finds very impossible over the most of the book to forgive her for. He does a lot to uh, drive her away. And, I mean, similar to how you were trying to say keep away the grandmother, much of what he's doing to try to keep everything normal is to very much isolate himself further. The few support networks that he tries to actually reach out to, like his dad, ultimately fail him utterly, while those who actually want to help him, he just continually pushes away. I wonder if the reason that he reached out to his dad was it, he knew that his dad wouldn't really be there. I'm, I don't. I don't know. He, 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 we'll get to the scene, but there's a scene later on of when he's kind of confronting his dad about what his dad's plan is, and he seems to really angrily resent that his father isn't trying to be more actively involved and isn't going to go bring him to America. Maybe he was just setting him up for failure there. Maybe he was just trying to give him an excuse to be angry. But he clearly responds with no small amount of rage in the next few scenes as a result of it. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I th- <laughs> we'll, we'll, get, we'll get into it more when, when, when we get there. But I feel like, you know, as we're wont to do, we keep jumping around with topics that, that we find interesting. Um, but There's, there's going to be a lot of jumping around and, it's gonna, and all these conversations are going to end with both of us kind of audibly shrugging and go, I don't know. That's going to be a. Yeah. That's going to occur a lot over the course of our talk about this book. Yeah, I, I think it, it it leaves a lot to be, um, maybe desired is not quite the right word, but a lot to, to to think about because I think that one of the things that this book does really well is this is kind of what happens in real life, and you know sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad and sometimes it just sort of is, and you don't get that resolution that you expect um but i do think that it's going a little bit more towards the small percentage of things happening and it i think it does it essentially to tuck at our heartstrings which you know uh, pluses and minuses Uh, but but anyway so basically you know shortly after there's this conversation with his mother about his grandmother coming out he um basically spends his, his first day at school that we see, and he has all these interactions with the teachers and, and administration that I described, and also um, he has a couple of interactions with his bullies and his friend, but basically he sort of gets through his first day, doesn't, I believe it's his first day that he just doesn't hand in um, 
the life stories or was that assigned on the first day? I think it was assigned on the first day. I, th- I think it, it's, a, it's an example of how, how downhill he starts to go later and how much more he just starts to feel isolated. Is He gets this... The first day, he still has at least a semblance of being normal-ish attached to it. He's bullied. His friend comes to his aid. A teacher comes to talk with him and confront with, and uh, deal with him and makes the mistake of trying to say... Doesn't she say something along the lines of, you know, I... I, I don't even know what you're going through right now, or could hardly imagine what you're going through right now, which is the worst possible thing you can ever say to Connor over the course of the story. But yeah. there's at least some still elements and fixtures of it still being normal as much as possible attached to it. Yeah, he goes through but a normal day of school. Red. Yeah, he gets assigned some homework, and this homework is, is life, you know, write a life story event, mm-hmm. which is, you know, a little bit too on point. I think for, for what's going on in his life, but you know, obviously things do happen that are very much like that, where, you know, you're going through the exact thing that you should be writing about, but it sort of puts to a head, like him refusing to deal with what's going on in his life. Oh yeah. And then he tries to think about the like last happy life moment that he really had and the first thing that comes to mind is the day before his mom told him. Or and, I, I, th- I thought it was the, essentially the day of, or was it the day before where like she took him out to ice cream and, yeah. and basically they, they spent an idyllic day together and he didn't really know it at the time. He, you know, he says he, he, you know, something was a little bit different, but presumably that's basically being colored through the eyes of reflection where now he knows why they had that day together. They had, you know, sort of, they, she tried to set up the perfect day of spending the last normal day together and do things that they both enjoyed. Mm-hmm. And he honestly reflects that, in retrospect, he knows exactly why she did that. That he knows exactly why she tried to set up this, as you said, idyllic moment. And there's a, a bit of a rank honesty we get early on from him about how pleasant and also false he knows it really was but how still much it meant to him but he immediately ends it with but he's not going to write about that i mean and, I, I think it's it, it'd be the hardest thing to write about and that's going to put and i think it's very relevant that well we'll get to it in a second but i think it's very relevant that what the monster demands of him seems to come directly out of this idea about telling a true story about yourself right and so uh, the monster comes to him and tells him that He's going to come and tell him three stories, and then Connor's going to tell the monster a story. The story. The true story. Which Connor immediately knows what the monster wants, and immediately recoils at even the thought of it. And it's... And I think the monster says, and if you don't, I will kill you. Yeah, what is exactly... So I'm, trying, I'm trying, flipping through as I'm going to it, but... Uh, do, do, do. But he says something along the lines, I'll kill you or you'll die or something. Then I will eat you alive. There it is. Which is a very interesting way to put it. Yes. So it's very perfect with sort of all the other things that that are themes in this story. It's, it's notable that several of the first times he interacts with this monster, this true summon demon, it does end with him being eaten alive by it. Which has all kind of potential metaphorical associations attached to it. Um, and so I, I think that the there are two main story themes, and, and 
and things to uh, go over, which is basically his interactions with the monster, which I would say are relatively separated from his day-to-day life. And so they sort of form two plot themes, I would say, and two not very linked plot themes. I would say they start separate, but then the, whatever separation exists, whatever division between this magic world and the real world he's experiencing, disappears pretty much entirely by the time the third story comes around. Yeah, and, and then towards the end, uh, it, there's sort of like an overlap between the, the monster world and, and the real world, or you know however you want to interpret it. But I sort of feel like if we go through one pretty much all the way up to the end and then the other all the way up to the end we can sort of get like concise coming together rather than jumping back and forth we'll, we'll see if the order works which one which should we start with the real world or the, the world of the stories that are being told um so i think i would start with the real world uh-huh. um because i think it's fairly straightforward and tells like a fairly straightforward story okay well i mean as as we said the story with um, the story kind of really beginning in the school, the acts of uh, him pushing off and very much ostracizing himself from his one true friend, being bullied, the teachers only handling him with the most kitty of kid gloves. Um, but the other key thing that improbably comes in when he comes home is the arrival of his grandmother, who we see very much from his eyes as a villain as a overly harsh controlling individual but any degree of adult perspective assigned to her shows that she's probably suffering as much as he is and trying to be the one adult in the room when no one else is really willing to take up that label yeah and like i also find a handful of things curious and and i wonder if this is a little bit british and a little bit more my coloration of how old my grandparents were when i was young because basically his grandmother is a real estate agent and has an impressive house and Uh has things very orderly um and is a very very much still going to work and still doing things and and uh a businesswoman she's relatively young by comparison. I think she even says at one point that 60 is the new 50. So she's presumably not not that far into her 60s and is very still much living an active, productive life, which baffles him. I mean, even from his perspective, she's not as a grandmother should be. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I guess when I was young, both of my uh, grandmothers were, you know, like in their 70s or 80s and oh, yeah. had pretty much both retired and, and were old at that point so mm-hmm. so yeah i sort of get this sort of disparate uh concept of what a, a grandmother is and and what he describes his grandmother as and he really much describes his grandmother as a very type a personality wants to make sure like everything's in its place and as an adult you can sort of see this woman that's trying to cope with her daughter dying yeah and, and- and we're jump. I'm going to jump around a little bit because you can't stop me. But later in the story, it makes very clear, and I think two scenes, how very much the two of them are sharing the same events from different perspectives, but suffering the same pain. Um, I mean, at the end, when she's driving Connor to the end to the end of the story, she straight up just tells him that you know we're not much alike. We don't have a lot in common, but we have one thing. 
your mom. And it really, at that point, just kind of wraps together a lot of the scenes that we've had of where she's holding together with pins and needles herself and just trying to be desperately strong as everything is falling apart in her life, too. And and the other side of it is, as I can't even imagine what it would be like as, a you know, somewhere in your 60s that basically your daughter's dying and there's this teenager that essentially you're probably going to have to start taking care of that you might not, yeah, that you might not have had the closest relationship with. Um, and this is sort of going to be your new normal. Um, and it sounds like, you know, there's a whole history of fractious relationships and, you know, we'll probably talk about them next episode where they're, probably been multiple either divorces or a divorce and and uh death of a husband and basically there are these two single women that one of them's about to die and the other's about to you know have to raise a child again yeah well going through the plot points um after deals with the fact that his grandmother has come in who pretty directly confronts the mom with that well, and also kind of confronts Connor with that you're going to be living with me, that your mom needs to have a conversation with you and needs to have it with you soon, which Connor obviously recoils at and wants no part in that thought and concept. But she's being a type A, being very planned, being very controlled. She's probably the only person in this story that's ever really directly planning out what the future needs to be. Everybody else is either trying to avoid it, that's trying to recoil for it, trying to hide from it, and hide Connor from it. But from the very beginning that we see her, she's, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know if come to terms with is probably the right word, but she's at least accepting what's going to happen and is at least trying to make it work. And I, I think she realizes, you know, the, the, the two options basically are her daughter survives or her daughter doesn't. And I think she's come to accept that her daughter isn't. I, I, I agree with you, but it's one of those either her daughter's going to get a lot sicker and not be able to take care of herself and, and Connor's not going to be able to take care of her or she's not going to survive and she's going to need to take care of Connor. Right. And and so we got a plan for this. Right. And. I think that it's sort of necessary for the book to have somebody with a plan for it to have the story that it wants to tell. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think sort of the grandmother is the other side of pushing the narrative forward of driving it towards the eventuality and the acceptance of what's going to happen. Right. I mean, I think it, I think it might be fair to say that Connor's pretty much only real support network over the course of this story is, whether he likes it or not, his grandmother, uh, his friend Lily, and the monster itself. Everybody else, which is honestly the people that he cares a lot more about, aren't, for either illness, distance, or a variety of other reasons, able to provide anything of what Connor actually needs to come to terms with what's happening. Yeah. Um, And... I, I may or may not remember, but I'm going to sh- shoot this out before I forget. But I think this is a topic better for the next episode, which is 
do you think there's something to basically all of the other major characters and all the other people in his life being female? Other than his dad? Major characters. He counts. But I, you know, I hadn't really thought about that. That's something worth pondering. I mean, so, because um, his best friend, Lily, and then Lily's mom, like, yeah. you don't talk about Lily's dad, then his teacher's female, the principal, yeah, principal's, fe- or headmaster, yeah, is female, his grandmother, and then his mother. Yeah, and the only exceptions to that being the monster were... Assigning gender there is probably a fool's errand, and his dad, who is... And, dis- and the bully. And the bully. But I would say his dad is probably the closest thing that he wants to be a support network, and his role in this novel is to be frustratingly distant. Um, so, anyway, back to, you know, his grandmother comes over and basically says, you're going to end up living with me, and his mom basically doesn't want to have that conversation, but sort of says, you know, I'm going to go in for some treatments and hope, you know, hopefully everything will be fine. But while I'm in the hospital, you have to live with your grandmother. Do we feel that the mom is in a certain degree of denial herself about her condition? Does she actually believe as Rosalie as she describes to Connor or is she merely just trying to protect him? I don't know. Um, you know, in that position, do you do you have to believe it's a key theme of one of the stories we're going to talk about, of how integral belief is to the process. Yeah. Um, one of uh, my dad's good friends um, that actually uh, he met because the first apartment that he rented in Baltimore, I think uh, it was his landlord, and they basically had a, I don't know, 10, 20-year friendship, probably like 20 or more, mm-hmm. um, got lung cancer. And had like, I think it was small cell lung cancer, like stage three or four when he was diagnosed and lived for years afterwards, you know, underwent chemo and worked basically the entire time supporting his family. You know, I, I sort of feel like a belief of that, that it's going to work is important to survival. Um and it's what they talk about with the placebo and the nocebo effect, is that the power of belief is a powerful both positive or detriment, depending on how it is wielded. That merely giving somebody a sugar pill with the utter reassurance and the utter convincing of them that it is a powerful medical cure has a success rate rivaling modern medicines under certain controlled conditions. Yeah, there's a MASH episode about that. That was a very good MASH episode about that. They ran out of painkillers, right? Yeah, and they substituted sugar pills, and it worked like a charm. And from the legal perspective, we often see a lot of lawsuits from people, say, um, who live under power lines, suing due to the chronic headaches or a variety of other conditions, to which there is no medical evidence backing up that there is any long-term health risk as a result of what they're complaining about. But they're unquestionably suffering from the symptoms. They're not lying about the fact they're suffering from them. They've just fully convinced themselves that they should, and so they do. That's called the nocebo effect on the opposite side of the placebo. And it's a real medical condition of where you've essentially caused yourself a medical condition or just merely mistaken as to what's real, really the source. As you, We're constantly jumping away. We're going to do this because we'll do this a lot when it comes to books that are kind of intensely philosophical that involve these kind of purposely vague themes and presentation just so we can insert so much of ourselves in it. And we're just going to do that because the book wants us to. We're just going to do that because the book wants us to. Yeah. But, um, and I think it's also important to like reference it, reference things that we know so we can like understand like the social 
and personal import of the things that, that are touched on in, and these in other books. And I think it's an important thing that we've got, well, this is going to tie into when we talk about the stories, but at each story and at each moment the story comes up, in some ways it feels as if it's in direct response to something that Connor experiences. The monster comes up with the idea of, you're, I'm, going to, you're, I'm going to tell you three stories, and then you're going to tell me one story, the true story, after he receives this homework and after he ponders to himself about these life moments and what that means and what he can and definitely can't write about. Um, the mere fact that the monster itself is a yew tree is kind of tying into the fact of how much this yew tree has apparently become, I don't know if it's either part of his mom's coping or just her kind of constantly reminiscing about maybe her own childhood living in this house, of where she almost is a, a continual motif and every other scene when they're at the home and that she'll almost nostalgically look out this tree and says, you know, it's a yew tree, you know? So maybe that's tying into why that manifests, just because of how important it seemed to be to his mom and his relationship with him. But one of the things I was talking about when I was in terms of either the parents purposely sheltering and Connor, when we talked about Connor wanting to keep everything normal, and I agree that he does. He wants to keep everything consistent. But there's a few moments, and like this one scene I'm going to read out, of where Connor seems to be pushing back against that and I'm curious what you think about what he's trying to do of where this is after his, these, it's been told he's going to go live with his grandmother for a while because his mom's going to go in for treatments. And she tells him this latest treatment's not doing what it's supposed to, but all that means is that we're going to have to adjust, try something else. And Connor asks, is that it? She nods. That's it. That's lots more than the, there's lots more they can do. It's normal. Don't worry. You're sure. I'm sure. Because because you could tell me, you know. There are several scenes like that of the course of the novel of where he, when he's talking with his mom, when he's talking with his dad, even to a degree when he's talking with his grandmother, of when he pushes back at the kind of either rosy or obscuring narrative that they're pushing against him. I agree that so much of Connor's character over the course of this book is to isolate himself from that truth. But there's a lot of scenes of where he directly asks for it from other characters. Is he hoping to be disappointed? Is he hoping for them to reaffirm the lie that he's convinced himself of? Or is he actually trying to get them to open up to it? Uh, that's tough. I, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I think that it's somewhere between he wants to know whether this will work, but also whether his mom believes it'll work. I mean, we talk about we've we talked already a little bit about belief and and the placebo and nocebo and all those other things. But does his mom believe that this is going to work? Because I feel like she can't, you know, can or cannot accept her own mortality, and basically is at least putting up that front of not accepting her mortality or that she's going to die. Maybe that's a, a better way of putting it. And sort of he wants to know if she's sort of decided that she's going to die now. Yeah. And I guess it's, it's sort of really hard to say whether he has that truth because, you know, and we'll get to it at the end. There's the, the truth that he needs to come and, to terms with is not about his mom dying or not. And so I guess in my mind at the points that he's talking about these things, it's he wants to 
confirms something that he thinks is true about the world, you know, that, that his mom is still fighting. Because if she's not fighting, that's a very different perspective on his reality. We were saying about every other sentence, we'll talk a bit more about this later, but I think a key theme for looking at a lot of these stories is not that there's necessarily a lesson attached to them. The monster laughs at him at the idea that there's ultimately a, a fable-like lesson at the end. But they almost seem to be built to just have him, help him come to terms with unfairness in the world and inconsistency in the world. And those seem to be two of the concepts that he's most struggling with internally. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And it it, it almost seems like the uh, British version of a koan. <laughs> That's an, that, that is a wonderful way to put that. Um, so, so for our listeners that don't want to immediately Google what that is, a koan is basically something to uh, help you meditate on. You know, sort of the, the most classic ones are a tree falling, you know, does a tree falling in the woods make a sound or what's the sound of one hand clapping? It's sort of a an impossibility that you think about to help you understand some truths of the world or, or, or something like that. And, and the dreams that he has of the monster, I think are very much, you know, sort of impossibilities and difficulties that he has to grapple with to come towards some truths of the world. It's one of those stories of where the answer to the degree even exists is not relevant because it's ultimately meant to be your answer to what the problem or, or, or issue is. So to continue quickly on, you know, what happens in real life, basically both of his school life proceeds and gets worse and worse. He goes to live with his grandmother and that's really rough on him. And um, basically it starts to come to a head that, you know, his mom's in the hospital and really not doing well. And his dad, who's basically been completely absent, is flies in to see him. They have a conversation. And so his life up to this point is really leading towards uh, a head. And as these various troublesome things happen to him, he has he gets told these three different stories by the monster. Um, and the first of which is basically a story about an ancient kingdom. Mm -hmm. And um, the king, during consolidating power, loses all his children. Fighting off foreign armies, goblins, ogres, and dragons, and all those other fantastical beasts that exist in that ancient era. And then basically has to continue living. And to do so, he needs to you know, produce an heir. Well, he already had, he already has oh, a yeah. grandson. That, that's right. That's right. Sorry. So one of his, one of his children already had a son, but he's very young. Mm -hmm. Um, and so in the meantime, he remarries. Doing his duty, doing what's expected and required of him to continue on. And basically he marries a, a very young woman. Um, and, um, then, sort of continues to rule the kingdom and, and hopes that, you know, before he dies, that his grandson will come of age and be able to take the mantle, uh -huh. which doesn't happen. Um, he dies before his grandson reaches majority. And so this uh, new queen 
basically takes over as regent. Who, as a result of a variety of factors, no small part of them being the prince himself, has already been effectively prejudged by all the kingdom. They're already fully convinced that she was the toxic, literal poison that brought about the death of their beloved king. That she is a, a witch, a practicer of magic who will only bring evil upon them. And so the prince, basically, he so he falls in love with the farmer's daughter, and um, the farmer's daughter is killed. And so he summons the monster to to him and basically says my grandma step-grandmother killed the the farmer's daughter that i was in love with that was beautiful that you know i I should have married and so i could have ruled the the kingdom after my grandfather you know my grandfather's name and we need to get rid of her and kill her to for the good of the kingdom Mm mm-hmm and the monster is indeed summoned by a wrong that he has to go fix. And so the you know the the prince says, okay, well you know let's go go kill this uh, the witch. And Connor is basically like, yeah, she has what's coming to her. She killed you know the love of the prince's life, and she killed the king, and you know she's the evil that is poisoning the kingdom. And the prince summons summons his armies, rallies the peasants, marches on the castle, and brings it to the ground, and ties her to the stake to burn her as a witch most deserves, only for the monster himself to intervene. And the monster saves the queen. Mm-hmm. And carries her off to a safe kingdom, a safe place where she can live out the rest of her life in peace. And Connor immediately recoils at this story as, as if it was, a, well, even straight up describing it as a trick. And he feels ultimately tricked by, by what happened in the story because the witch didn't get what was coming to her. And yes. I think this is another example of a female sort of playing, maybe not an antagonist, but a major role. And he's a, I, I think that, I'm going to put, you know, a theory here that his frustration with his mother and and the unhealthy relationship that he has with his mother is being borne out with all of the other female major characters. And he clearly starts to view himself in the role of the prince and cast his either his mother or his grandmother in the role of this evil uh, step-grandmother, this evil matriarch. But immediately the monster turns the entire story on its head. But immediately the monster turns the entire story on its head. Of where the reason that he was summoned was that he did see an injustice. He saw an injustice in the sense of what the prince had told him when he asked for his help. And what would ultimately be the injustice if the prince succeeded in his full regard. And that the prince revealed to him, and the monster apparently saw underneath the yew tree that he was, that it was the prince that had killed this young uh, farm girl for the purpose of rallying the rest of the kingdom to his aid by casting his... His step-grandmother, right? Yeah, step-grandmother that sort of wanted to marry him to solidify the line, which was an interesting aside. Would have been very typical for a medieval kingdom, but it is an interesting tie-in for what various interpretations we're putting on the story. Um, 
I would, I would again, saying that she's in the role of the grandmother, it's tying into the idea of him going to live with her, being part of her household, and how much even in hearing that described in the story, he recoils at it. But we're going to save a lot of that interpretation for next episode. But okay. Con- if Connor is indeed put in the role of the prince, and the monster's revealing that the prince is the one that killed off his one true love to the purpose of rallying the world against uh, this evil grandmother of his, well, there's a lot to unpack there about what this story means and what it's saying if we're putting the characters in the roles that it's expecting us to. And I think it's saying even more because the monster, the yew tree, saved the grandmother, but still allowed the prince to carry out this usurpation, I would say, of power. And, and very casually just says that he went on to be a good and beloved king. Yeah, and, you know, that the way he was trying to get power might have been awful, but, you know, that didn't really reflect on how he continued and carry on with it, carried on with his life. And the monster makes no bones also about saying that, oh yeah, she was a witch. Oh yeah, she may have been engaging in horrendous magic, but she wasn't guilty of the crime they were about to burn her for. And so this is the first time that he really has to deal with... Inconsistency. Inconsistency and... And sort of truth about the world. Things not fitting into so easy of boxes that have so easy of interpretations and solutions. They're, they're black and white are rarities. It's more often shades of gray. I'd say of the, th- of the three stories, this is almost intentionally the easiest to unpack. So I feel like in some ways the monster, to the degree we which want to say the monster is indeed an entity of its own, is very much trying to slowly get Connor to open his perspectives on this. The next stories get a little bit denser and less easy to interpret, I would say. To the degree to which we can even say the third story is much of a story. Yeah. Um, The second story was the priest, I believe? The priest and the apothecary. Yeah. Um, and, And so, you know, this is another one where you have, you know, sort of two main characters, one which you're supposed to assume is in the right, um, and one which you're supposed to assume is in the wrong. So -hmm. you have uh, a chemist, an apothecary, you know, a man, uh, a medicine man. And um, basically this medicine man is a curmudgeon. And... More than just unpleasant, it does describe him as being greedy and to a certain degree even abusive to the community that he's in. He, it, his goal here is not healing. His goal here is not humanitarian. His goal is his own profit. His means is humanitarian. Yeah, sure. I feel like that's a very lawyer thing to say, Spencer. That's what I'm here for. I get paid uh, for this. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then there's a priest. Uh, or a parson. Um, yeah. I assume that they're somewhat different since the parson has daughters, um, or at least official daughters. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, you know, the, the leader of the community, this parson has two beloved daughters. They, they fall ill. Well, in, in before that, because I think the point, the contrast is, is necessary that, okay. um, the parson has this giant yew tree, which is the recurrent element of all of these stories. Cause the monster is always there despite yes. however past their time. And the apothecary is desperate for this tree. This tree, as the yew actually is, and was used historically, has incredible medicinal properties, has incredible medicinal potential. And he 
very much wants to make all the money that he can make by tearing this thing down and using it for his products. Which the parson recoils at for a few reasons. He recoils at the idea of this tree, which is the foundation of his church, the foundation of his yard, upon which everything has been built, and also just for what the apothecary represents, that he is the old ways, he is the past, he is everything that they're moving on and moving past. Wait, the apothecary so, is the past? Yeah. Okay. Okay. I mean, it, sa- it says that he is, that he represents the old cures, that he represents... Yeah. The, the old medicine that uh, the society that we're now situated in the second story has started to move and modernize past. And so the parson spreaks out about this. He criticizes the apothecary. He mocks him. He diminishes his business even further from those that already turned against his trade in favor of more modern wares, to which only drives the apothecary even deeper into bitterness. Yeah, that, that, that he's being rejected by his community, which, I mean, admittedly, like, he's not a you know he's not doctors without borders here you know he's providing a service but but still you know he's providing a service to his community and basically the leader of the community is railing against him and saying you know that he doesn't have a place in this community and then as you said an illness falls a plague descends upon the community and two of those most afflicted are the parson's own daughters a pox upon his house you say Oh, indeed, indeed. Thank you. Oh, got Mercutio. Thank you, Mercutio. Uh, Now, the apothecary seeks out all the treatments that he knows and trusts. He prays. He goes to the doctors in the nearby town. He pays for all the medicines that he can afford, and nothing works. And so, in this desperation, in this crisis of faith, he goes and begs at the apothecary's door. And the apothecary has an interesting series of responses to him. Yeah, he basically, you know, the the parson says, you know, help me. If you're not willing to help me for for my sake, for you know, me being the leader of a community, what about my daughters? They're they're young young girls. They're innocent. Like why, you know, help them, you know, because of them. And the apothecary says, why should I? I and I quote, you've driven away my business with your preachings. You have refused me the yew tree, my best source of healing. You have turned this village against me. And to which the parson replies, you may have the yew tree. Mm-hmm. I will preach sermons in your favor. I will send my parishioners to you for their every ailment. You may have anything you like if you would only save my daughters. And the apothecary responds, you would give up everything you believe in? If it would save my daughters, I'd give up everything. And then the apothecary says, then there is nothing I can do to help you. And I feel like this perfectly plays into to our previous discussion about his mother's belief in her treatment. Right. And several of the characters of the course of the story just say with some degree of just awe that she's a fighter, that she's, I think, clearly lived a lot, lived and endured a lot more than everybody expected of, perhaps because that she's not just trying to lie to Connor. She's not just trying to obscure what she's going through and the ultimate chances of it all failing. She may honestly believe, or at the very least, honestly hope that there is a light at the end of this tunnel that she can make it through. And if so, that could be one of the things that's just kept her going for so damn long. And and I think that's sort of, at least to me, that's what the second tale tells, is that belief is important. And and it's, I think, his mother's belief in treatments that, that, that they will continue working that has sustained her for so long and that, you know, the turn for the worse and 
her turning to her mother to be like, all right, you need to take care of my son because, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. As she starts losing that conviction is really when things start taking a turn for the worse. And also, I think he sort of starts to understand that, that, you know, now she's starting to lie to him. Yeah. Uh, what do you think of the fact of what the monster then does in this story? That Connor, once he hears all this, fully expects that when the monster has been called in this tale, that he's going to go and destroy the apothecary, bring a pox upon his house. But instead, the monster immediately, without any hesitation, with all the fury that he's capable of, blows the church apart, drives the parson from the community. And what do we think that what do we think that's saying? What do, th- what do we think that means? Particularly given what Connor immediately does in response to it upon hearing this. Yeah, um, I don't know. I feel I feel like that's tough. I th- I think that this is really talking about the power of belief and the power and the importance of staying true to yourself and 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 truth as you see it as best you can see it because. As far as we can tell, the parson doesn't believe... I don't think the parson believes in the apothecary, even at his moment of great need. He's just desperate. He's just desperate and has absolutely no other choice and will do anything to to help his, his young daughters and basically is essentially willing to destroy the community as he's tried to build it to save his children. As said, I want, kind of want to spend a full episode diving into these stories and what they could possibly mean next time, just because they are dense to unpack. But what strikes me as very interesting afterwards is that this is one of the first times we see Connor essentially adopt the role of the monster in his own imaginings and his own belief, of where he is inserted into the story and he starts knocking down the various walls and aspects of the Parsons' home. And then comes to the real world, and it's not the parson's home that he's destroyed. It's his own grandmother's most treasured living room. And the and, clock. What'd you say? And, and the treasured clock, which... Which he did that before. He did that even before the story started. Yeah. Do you think that there's, like, a, a thing with that? Like, I, I feel like 1207 was a recurring theme, and clocks were a recurring theme. And, you know, is it as simple as, you know, time's ticking away? Could very well be. We find out later the 1207 itself is highly relevant, but it could be an obvious enough motif just to say that he's recoiling against time, against the loss of it, to the point that he's even willing to destroy that which embody it. But yeah. I, f- I find it interesting that when the scene starts with him destroying this clock and the monster mocks him for it, of what little destruction he's capable of, and then when the scene ends, when he finished the story and Connor's laid waste in a way that's almost impossible to the room that he's in. I mean, the level of destruction he pulled off would be impressive for a full-ass team of adults, but he's doing it at 13 and a tizzy. Um, but this is the moment where the monster, in response to this, I mean, what, what does he even say? He just kind of compliments him at the end of this story, doesn't he? What's the, what's the word he uses? Now that uh, okay. now that is how destruction is properly done, that is. And and this is at least, I don't know how many illustrations that, that are in the actual book, but here's where, you know, one of the illustrations I have on the Kindle edition is sort of an, a completely destroyed uh, living room and, you know, a lamp hanging off its, uh, a lampshade hanging off its lamp and, and sort of a bunch of furniture and rubble. I, I have, I 
I'm thinking that's probably the same picture that I've got of where it's Connor in the lower right foreground and the lamp in the upper right, the upper top right. Yep, exactly. But it makes it very clear that the level of destruction that he's pulled off is, I wouldn't even say borderline unrealistic. It's practically impossible for this kid to have done what is now before him. And it's all happening, now tying back into the real world again, right before his grandmother returns home. And he's made a point when being introduced to this house, that this house is not made for him. This house is not welcoming of him. But his grandmother takes very few steps to accommodate him and make him feel comfortable in it. But now the most treasured room, everything is just antiques and locked away behind treasured cabinets with hardwood floors. This classic room that she's built carefully as part of her structured type A world has been laid waste. And she's walking in now to see it. And Connor is, as described in the story, more afraid than he has ever been in his life. And I, I think this is sort of one of the... This is important scene, how his grandmother reacts. Yeah, exactly. And and it's sort of one of those things where it, it's, in my mind, similar to, like, you do something and your parents just aren't even mad. They're just, oh. like, sad and disappointed, which I'm sure you never actually experienced since you're a golden child, but... I remember a few times when my parents just told me, I'm very disappointed in you. And I remember my soul dying and kind of collapsing into a little black hole. Basically, his, his grandmother walks in and, and just sort of is in awe of the destruction that, that he's wreaked upon her, her living room and, and one of her most prized possessions. And she just yells out in pain, essentially. Yeah, she makes this moaning, keening sound flooding out of her. And then she does a very interesting thing, of where she walks over to the last thing that's still standing and still screaming, still utterly in emotional state. She rips it down herself and adds it to the carnage. And I think it's a really interesting, revealing scene about the level of torment that's going on inside her, too. It could just be, you know, sheer frustrations to your anger at Connor's show, unwillingness to deal with this and confront this, particularly when she locks herself in her room afterwards. But I think she and Connor really do have a lot alike in terms of how they're both dealing with this. She's just adult enough not to have these kind of violent episodes to express the sheer grief and depression they're going through. Yeah, and, and I guess you could say that, again, her trying to plan out the future and that she's going to take over care of Connor is the, what you were saying, the adult parallel of, you know, it's fine. I'm going to take care of my mother and go to school and everything's fine. Like I can make my own food and whatever else. Mm -hmm. They're just trying to sort of both do it in the absence of anybody else around them. Right. I mean, one of the worst things you can ever do with grief is be alone with it. Do not have either a structure or a plan or other people to be around you. And for both his grandmother and Connor, they're very much alone in their grief, but they're each finding their own means of coping. For his grandmother, she's got an orderly schedule. She's got a plan. She's with her daughter. She's there at a certain time. Her cell phone is off. She's got Connor at home. She's got, got a set series of procedures attached to it to help make it more bearable. Of where it's several steps that you each can accomplish and each checkbox you can make to cope with it. Connor doesn't have that kind of ordered mind. He doesn't kind of he doesn't have that kind of structure that comes and you get used to establishing when you get older. So all he has to cope with it is quite literal flights of fantasy. Is yep. this, it's this inventive escapism through the monster to the degree that we believe the monster is not real or intended to be real. 
or at least not real to the rest of the world. But that's all he has to cope with it because he has nothing else to uh, rally upon to keep going. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned that like one of the worst things about grief is to be alone because um, in Judaism, the visiting mourners and um, after uh, an immediate relative dies, you have a week of where you basically sort of mostly stay at home and there are loads of other things like you cover the mirrors and sit on low chairs and things like that, but people come visit you and you talk about the deceased and a number of times a day you pray and it's a communal organization thing that when this happens, people from the community go and, you know, at least 10 males go. So there's a specific prayer that you say, and it also is sort of a more formalized version, but you have people that come and visit and come and spend time with you. Um, when my father died for, you know, the week afterwards, and I spent a week in, you know, Baltimore, basically went home from, from my PhD for a week and took care of a lot of other things. But in the evenings, uh, a lot of my friends, friends of his, other members of the community and family came to visit and talk and spend time. And it, it was very much, it's very much a codified way of, of somebody not being alone and also being allowed to mourn. And I think it's one of the great ways that um, various cultural and religious traditions kind of evolve to provide that emotional support, that they set established procedures to provide what is integral to a person actually healing and making it through their grief. But I think one of the things that kind of ties in well into our third story, our third aspect, really our third part of the novel, is that Connor is very much alone. And the efforts of those around him to help him and support him are only making that worse. And I feel like it's it's perfect that you say that because literally the next chapter is titled Invisible. And I think leading into this, and it's one of the things we see early on in this chapter, is that Connor has done several things that he knows should be punished, that he knows should be condemned as part of any real and rational world that he occupies. But as his world has gotten so far removed from that, he does horrendous things. Like early on, it's with him when he's sitting on the playground after his teacher comes out and talks to him, like threatens him with a demerit or something and then withdraws it. And he sits out there thinking that I could stay out here all day and they wouldn't punish me. And now he's just obliterated his grandmother's sitting room. A truly unforgivable crime. The most afraid he's ever been in his life to see what she reacts to. And she yells, she screams, not at him, locks herself in her room and cries. And when he wakes up in the morning, his father picks him up and takes him to school. And he straight up asks him that I'm, you're not even going to punish me? And all his father says, what would be the point, Con? What could possibly be the point? And that just really, they're trying to help him. They're trying to be supportive of him. But this refusal to treat him as a person, to respond to him, to add some level of normality to how they interact with him, is just making him feel even more isolated. Yeah, and, and you know, it, it continues even further. It Basically, everything in his life is isolated. This, this is the chapter that I think really defines his isolation, 
because yeah. his father says, you know, what's the point of, of maintaining normality? And then the life stories that he's supposed to hand in, he doesn't hand in and his teacher completely ignores it. And then his bullies, you know, that, that have been hitting him and making fun of him, ignore him. You know, it, you know, it's, it's like, the, you know, there isn't even a point anymore. He's, he's just, he's so sad and depressed. Like, why, why even hit him? And so they just ignore him. He, 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 wa- he wants that interaction, any interaction that he can have, you know, even if it's negative, he craves it. And so his bully being the, the clear sadist that he is. Oh, and then this, I love that the teacher at one point just kind of flippantly says, oh, yeah, he's going to be prime minister someday. <laughs> that he's charismatic, he's creative, he's inventive, he's intelligent, and he is an utter and completely contemptible individual. Uh, one of the out, sort of off-color jokes that my mom likes to tell is um, a masochist and a sadist get married, and the masochist says... To the sadist, beat me, beat me, and the sadist says, "I will not." That's an old and great joke. And so this is sort of like the he he craves any attention, and the negative attention that he craves, just like the bully knows that that's what he wants and won't give it to him. No, and to the point that even when the bully tells him this, and that he goes and yells and confronts him, he looks around the cafeteria, and no one's willing to meet his eyes. That he is a, yep. that he's in a room of people and alone in the center of it. And at this moment, as the monster has over the course of every aspect of the story, when something has abandoned him, when something has gone wrong, when something has shattered his ability to actually maintain some hope of a routine, it arrives and it has another story to tell. And this one, this one is the most minimalist of all of them. Yeah, this is, um, I mean, it's at 12, it's also at 12.07 PM, but it's still 12.07. Yes. Of where, um, well, actually, I mean, there's, a few, there's a few of the scenes even leading into this. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, he has some interactions with his mom and things like that. The monster even shows up again, but it's not ready to give him a third story. Um, yeah. Talks about the you being a healing tree. Is this the point where his mom even brings up that the uh, the medicine that she's now going on is her last in treatment is actually from the yew tree itself? Yep. Connor immediately... Starts just holding on to it as if it's a life preserver. For it all makes sense now. It's a healing tree. The story about its healing, the story about its magic, it's come to right these wrongs. Pretty much every time he hears one of these stories, he immediately seizes on an aspect of it of how that aspect is going to fix everything. That the monster's yeah. here to get rid of my grandmother. The monster's here to punish my father. The monster is here to heal my mother. Which is never the lesson that he needs to, but it's the childish response out of desperation to what he's being presented with. He's grasping at whatever straw he can. Yeah. Um, have you seen The Fountain? You know, I never have. Oh, we might need to, to watch it the, um, over New Year's. It, Mangum Watch? Th- third podcast, Mangum Watches? Or wait, wait, a fourth podcast now? <laughs> Something like that. I, I mean, maybe just in general, but I don't know why it's one of my favorite movies. And but it is, and it I it just this story reminds me so much of it, and it actually kind of ties in and reminds me of um, one of my favorite memories of of uh, an ex girlfriend that I dated um, in graduate school, and 
Um, she'd lost both of, both of her parents to cancer before we met. And this movie is a number of different stories, and they all sort of revolve around this tree that's basically the fountain of youth, the, the tree of life. And the one of the main stories is about this researcher who's researching youth um, and basically turning back the clock, but his wife is dying of cancer. And so he's desperately trying to use the compounds that they're presumably deriving from this tree that's, you know, they sort of found somewhere in the new world to try and heal his wife's cancer. And the score is incredible. It's a Hans Zimmer score. And um, if you don't know who Hans Zimmer is, I... I know Hans Zimmer. Don't worry about that. Um, and... Um, just the music and the visuals are just wonderful. And, and I just remember sort of just the emotion of bonding with, with her while watching that movie was, um, I wanted to share this story with her because I feel like this would be another, like, basically how a main character deals with somebody they, they love and care about dealing with cancer. Yeah, we'll definitely, we'll definitely need to watch it at some point. Uh, one thing to tie Hans Zimmer to that our audience might be more familiar with, didn't he score Inception too? Uh, he scored Inception, and, and I'm kind of amused that you chose that one because I was... It's a famous one. A hundred percent sure you're going to go with Gladiator. It, I No, no. I, I, actually, I actually have some serious qualms about that movie for a variety of reasons, though I did like his score in it. Um, and Black Hawk Down. I actually didn't know he did that one. Mm-hmm. It's got it's got some good music to it too. Yeah, he 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 does okay. He's made it. He's he's had a good career. You know, him and John Williams, they do well for themselves. Yeah, every so often. One thing that's interesting about Connor's interactions in between him telling the second and third story, his interactions with the monster, is that this is one of the times when the monster is basically straight up telling Connor what he's actually here for and what he's not here for. But yeah. Connor, but Connor's not getting it. Of where. The monster, uh, he, he asks him, "You're, you're gonna, you're gonna heal her, right? Can you heal her?" And the monster just says, "If your mother can be healed, then the yew tree will do it." A non-answer, if there ever was one. And yeah. then Connor uh, kind of flippantly says, "All you're here for is life riding." The monster looks surprised at him and says, "Indeed, look for me soon." And one of my favorite ones at the end, which very much says why the monster is actually here. Uh, you said you were a tree of healing. Well, I need you to heal. And so I shall. And with a gust of wind, it was gone. Um, again, this is... The, if we see the monster as being an aspect of Connor's consciousness, then his own mind knows all the answers to these questions and is willing to come to terms with them if he can just get everybody else in his head to cooperate. Yeah, and and I, I you know, I, I feel like sort of the the last time and and right presumably before he he has to tell his his story the answer to the question is there which it well, and the tree says what it's always been there right but you know he says you're the one who called me connor o'malley you are the one with the answers to these questions 
And he says, you know, I called you, it was to save her, it was to heal her. And the tree says, you know, what we've sort of finally come to understand is I did not come to heal her, I came to heal you. But get, get, getting to there, we've got to make it through the third tale first. And yes. it's a very interesting one, and in that it's barely told by the monster or by anyone. We just kind of see it acted out by Connor himself. Of where all it really is is about a man who was once invisible, not really, but just to everyone else, and how he'd grown tired of it. And that his only way of escaping from it, as he eventually realizes, is to become grotesque. And that upon accomplishing that, no one can ever not see him again. And Connor himself very much enacts the story in terms of confronting his bully, where his bully has hit the most important chord he possibly could, because he's a master sadist in terms of literally telling Connor, I don't see you anymore, and just turning his back on him and walking away. And Connor going to confront him as the monster summoned behind him and starts reciting the story to him, as Connor then proceeds to beat the bully within an inch of his life in a way that is so utterly vicious, so impossibly brutal that the headmistress kind of struggles to believe that a boy could have accomplished it. The, the entries she describes are goddamn impressive. Breaks his nose, breaks his arm, breaks a few ribs. A variety of other things that a 13-year-old inflicting another 13-year-old in a crowded room you wouldn't think would be practically possible except for a kid who is literally powered by monstrous rage. And 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 sort of th this comes to the the final point of his refusal to accept help, I think, mm -hmm. which is the um, Lily gives him a note. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Important important thing to point out is that even after this, even after all this, uh, the headmistress again refuses to punish him and tells him again the same way his father did. What purpose could that possibly serve? just driving it even deeper into itself. But yes, then the note, the beloved note, one of my favorite moments of my favorite and few heartwarming moments in this entire damn novel. Um, yeah. So, so the note was, I'm sorry for telling everybody about your mom. I miss being your friend. Are you okay? I see you. And the eye is underlined. A hundred, a hundred times. I think it even said, and it, he actually opens up for a second. He gets ready to open up, but the world itself is collapsing around him as, it, as he tries to. Well, it sort of doesn't say what happened, but, you know, clearly he's not ready to accept what what life has given him and, and really reach out. And so... I'm not, I'm not so sure. I mean, he actually starts to speak to her, which he hasn't done for a long damn while. It's just at that exact moment two teachers come roaring in because he needs to go see his mom right now. So, I mean, the book never goes into what further happens with him and Lily's relationship, but I I fully am willing to believe that they, the, two, the two of them would share a friendship again after that moment and after how much that clearly meant to him to have her say that at that time. Oh, don't worry. It's uh, Bridge to Terabithia all over again. Oh, just shut up. Sh shut up with that novel and you referencing every chance you get. I, f I feel like there there were a couple of books that about probably a little bit younger than his age that that we read in school and were rough 
Um, and that was that was one of them. Where the red fern grows, if you actually read Old Yeller, all kinds of things like that. Um, I just, I, there's one that I, I distinctly remember a scene in it, mm-hmm. but I don't remember the name of the book, and it sort of frustrates me. Um, but it's basically this kid that's in an impressively poor neighborhood and basically um, is not quite living on the streets, but his family is living barely paycheck to paycheck. I think he's on food stamps and he adopts an alley cat. And I think he either, you know, scrounges together some money or basically steals some uh, cat food and Mm -hmm. is feeding this alley cat and sort of develops a friendship with, you know, with this cat and sort of adopts it as his pet as he's going through the struggles of life. And then it's like three quarters of the way through the book as he's finally, you know, fully adopted this, this cat as his pet, it gets run over by a car. And it was like right after the cat that I grew up with uh, died. And it was like, it was a, a kick in the teeth. I imagine it was, which... So many of these books feel like they're almost intended to do that, as if they're just trying to either help kids cope with what they've already experienced or help them brace them, already give them a bracing for it for when it inevitably comes. And and I guess understand the things that they're going through. And understand that what they're going through is not necessarily unique or needs to be suffered alone. And so so, so I think here's where we, we've, we've finally gotten to where the story comes to a head and... and and both the the monsters' tales and real life come together. Of where he's after he's the teachers have come to get him after he's pulled away from Lily. He goes to see his mom in the hospital, and they finally are able to share a bit of an honest conversation to at least a certain degree about what's happening, which is a struggle for her. She's clearly dying. She's clearly suffering. That she I both needs to admit this to herself, but also needs to tell her son about what's about to occur. And Connor doesn't recoil. He doesn't rage against her. He takes it pretty much in stride as best as he can. Um, But upon leaving, upon her disappearing into a world of painkillers once again to cope, he basically just demands of his grandmother that he needs to go home right now. He needs to go to the U-Tree. So, so I feel like before before we we gloss over it, I I feel like given the the belief that we've been talking about, you know, this sort of whole time, mm-hmm. the the conversation, yeah, where where he she says, you know, the the treatment's not working, and he says, well, okay, what happens now? And she didn't say anything, and he says, okay, well, so you're saying there isn't anything else? And she says, I'm sorry. I've never been more sorry about anything in my life. Yeah. He says, well, you said it would work. I know. You said. You believed it would work. I know. You lied. You've been lying this whole time. She says, I did believe it would work. It's probably what kept me here so long, believing it so you would. And he says, you lied. And she responds, I think deep in your heart you've always known haven't you? Mm-hmm. 
And she says, you know, it's okay that you're angry. And and I think it sort of goes on from there to, to more acceptance. But I think that's the, it shows you that, that she's kept up this belief and she's kept on fighting for him. I mean, mm-hmm. partially for her, but, but a large part for him. And that, that really gives strength to the, you know, she's survived this long because she believes it and she needs to be there for him. Yeah. I, I find her, what she says to him next, very interesting too, of where um, you be as angry as you need to be. Don't don't let anyone else tell you otherwise. Not your grandma, not your dad, no one. If you need to break things, then my God, you break them good and hard. And if one day you look back and you feel angry for being so, feel bad for being so angry, if you feel bad for being so angry at me that you couldn't even speak to me, then you have to know, Connor, you have to know that it is okay. It was okay that I knew. It's a very heartfelt little moment of where I think she's, she's definitely clearly talking to Connor, trying to give him the last advice, his last emotional connection. But I think also she's also voicing her own feelings through him as well. I mean, I can't imagine the anger and rage she's probably going through herself about what is happening to her, about what she's being, about the loss that she's feeling. And, She's giving him forgiveness. Yeah. For what he's about, for what he will do and for what he's about to endure and for whatever he needs to tell her as he comes to terms with this. I wish I had a hundred years, a hundred years I could give to you. If you haven't picked up on this, this is a very sad book, folks. And it gets, it, <laughs> we are reaching the sad climax of this story. Yep. And, and so the sad climax is, is he comes to the yew tree and, and the yew tree says, it's your turn now. Now it's your turn to tell the story. The, the nightmare that has been hounding him for God knows how long. I think he even says at one point in the story that he, start, he started having the nightmare three or four times a night. It is, it is killing him. It is consuming him. And the monster demands that he finally reveal it openly to the world. And, and BJ, what, what to himself. Say? Oh yeah, to himself as well. Um, and... Basically, it's the nightmare is um, his mom slipping away. Being pulled away by this amorphous darkness and him desperately holding on to her. Very much the personification of, of cancer, if there ever was one. Oh, very much so. And he's the last thing that can hold on to her, the last thing that's literally pulling her back from the abyss. And she falls. And she disappears, and he's left alone on the ridge, staring down to the blackness that is left behind. And the monster forces him to confront what really happened, which is not that she fell. It's that he, he let her go. And it's torturous to Connor to admit this. That we realize that when he's talked about this monster, about everything else that he's endured with this nightmare and how much it's hurt him that people haven't been willing to punish him. The sheer amount of guilt that he feels about this recurring nightmare, the sheer desperation to be condemned, to be scourged as a result of what he's feeling inside, that he is consciously trying to let her go, to let her fall into the abyss, that it's killing him that have these feelings and not be able to either express them or come to terms with them or have the world respond how he feels it should, that he feels this inside. 
And, it, you know, he finally comes to term with the fact that he wants his mother to die because she's suffering. Yeah. And that it's not wrong for him to not want to suffer anymore, too. That all he's wanting with this feeling is to escape from pain, and that's not wrong. That as we talk about over the course of these stories, these stories have been intentionally over and over and over again trying to expose him to the idea that conflicting things exist. That people can be good and selfish. They can be full of faith but want to abandon their faith when, when things happen. And that doesn't make them bad, doesn't make them good, it makes them people. And that Connor's been so unwilling to come to terms with the fact that he feels this, whereas the monster's only just trying to tell him that, of course you are. Of course you want not only the pain to stop for you, but to stop for her, that you just want it to end. That's only natural, and that this level of self-loathing you've wrapped up in yourself to hide it from yourself and blame the world for the fact it's not condemning you for it can only only end in your death with hers he wanted it to end he meant it with all his heart and he meant it not to end with all his heart and that those aren't conflicting things right that he can desperately never want to lose her but still need an ending to this and he goes through this, and this is one of the few moments where we see them. The monster generally has been, I wouldn't say cruel, but with a certain aura of evil attempt that always focuses on his evil grin, it focuses on his threats, on his violence, but he is nothing but supportive and considerate and desperately comforting in this moment of when Connor has, forced, has finally told his story, has finally accepted and revealed the truth. Which is um, the idea, the, the image that it picks of him wrapped up in the tree's leaves, of just in his own little nest to sleep, that he can sleep, that he can rest, that there is still time, is a heartwarming bit of catharsis leading into what is the ultimate tragedy of the story here at the end. I, and I feel like there are a couple of things that are, you know, the main points of the book. Um, the lines, you do not write your life with words, you write it with actions. Oh, what you think is not important, it is only what you do. Mm-hmm. And then you do what you did just now, you speak the truth. That's it? You think it is easy? Yeah. You were willing to die rather than speak it. Because what I thought was so wrong. It was not wrong, it was only a thought, one of a million. It was mm-hmm. not an action. Yeah, some very, very meaningful and powerful lines put there. A lot of, this book is built around truth. All these stories, the only purpose of them was to reveal something that was true. The end solution of this is a character revealing truth, and a lot of these lines that get us there have a lot of truth attached to them. And then the final truth, which is, why do you always come at 12.07? Why do you always come at 12.07? And he falls asleep before he gets his answer, but his grandmother, in desperation, is there to find him, to take him to his answer. Which is, that's the time that his mother dies. Yeah. As she arrives, having seemingly searched for him in hours in increasing desperation, because she knows with certainty what's about to occur, and she knows absolutely that she needs to get Connor there for it. 
And she finds him at the last possible moment. She takes him to the hospital and they have a true and honest conversation between themselves about whatever else that they have in difference that they always will have his mom in common and all that that means and what they've endured in terms of him losing his mom and her losing her only daughter. And as you said, the last chapter is literally entitled The Truth. As he arrives at the hospital, as his mom is clearly in her last moments, but is still conscious enough to know that her mother is there, to know that her son is there. And... They have their last conversation. And it's... It's interesting what truth he's finally able to speak. Because it's finally being able to come to terms with what he's been feeling. To accept the true truth that's under there, whatever else has been attached to it. That I don't want you to go. And she says, I know. I know, my love, I know. And he says it again, and and then she dies. He knew it would come, and soon, maybe even this 1207, the moment she would slip from his grasp, no matter how tightly he held on. But not this moment, the monster whispered, still close, not just yet. And Connor held tightly onto his mother, and by doing so, he could finally let her go. If nothing else you can say for this book, it is supremely well-written. Yes, and I did thoroughly appreciate that. And I also, I actually really liked the, how it ended. Um, and it ends with a picture. Um, it ends with the yew tree and then yeah. the sky. And, and I guess sort of in black and white, it might be a little bit different, but it sort of looks like very harsh uh, brushstrokes at, at the, the base of the yew tree and the yew tree sort of weathering what looks like a storm. All the pictures in the main book are in black and white, too. So everything you saw was the same thing I did. But, yeah, I love that picture at the end of terms of... This is a tree that has endured for literally thousands of years of just this. And if you believe it, it's the monster being summoned. It has chosen its moments across time to provide just what it has done for Connor and will continue to weather them for time immemorial. It is a... Well... We will talk in greater detail about what we got out of this book, about how we interpret some of the stories and scenes, and if there is an overarching message to draw from this, beyond what we've already beyond what we've already fiddled with. But and just in terms of your impressions about it is a story about what you about uh, did you enjoy did you enjoy it as much as you could given its utterly somber focus. Yes and no. And and I think we'll, you know, we'll t- again, you know, we keep saying we're going to talk about it next episode. And I feel like if we edited that out, we'd have a much shorter episode. But <laughs> We're two hours in. Eventually we do have to stop. That's true. Um, I think that my biggest issue with, with the book, and, and I think it was well written, and I think it, you know, it was a very easy read for me. Um, and, and I sort of blew right through it. Um, but I feel like it, it's sort of normalizing behavior that I disagree with. Would you mean in terms of Connor's actions or? Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that sort of at the end it says, you know, the actions are really what make you and, and what make up how you deal with the world. But I feel like a the anger and destruction and violence 
that he expresses because he can't deal with his mother's death is given a pass both by the people in the book and by the book itself. And that I, really bothered me. I would say that it certainly is given a pass in the book, uh, a pass by the characters in the book. I would disagree that it's given a pass by the book itself, in large part because of how much more it hurts Connor that the characters don't punish him, that they don't respond, they don't have any sense of normality attached to it. I think that really blends into how just utterly toxic and destructive the last focused story about invisibility is for Connor, that he has done these heinous acts and they're just brushed over. I think in many ways the book is condemning that he isn't, that everybody is just, that everybody is just kind of ignoring him, is just letting him fade into the background rather than actually giving him the focus and attention he desperately is clearly needing. Um... I don't know. I feel like his grandmother joining in with his destruction of her living room um, and then his mother sort of forgiving him and okaying his anger. I feel mm. like sort of both of those things maybe not like completely give his anger and, and, and violence a pass, but I feel like it, it gives it more of a stamp of approval than than. I'm comfortable with. No, I, I fully understand that. I think it's something to be interesting to talk more about. Just to um, how do I how did I how I interpreted those two in particular? Because I don't think the I think the book makes several times in terms of not necessarily criticizing the mother for how she's choosing to go about this, but disagreeing with her. Of course. I don't think the the book is endorsing how that she's kept this hidden and separate from him. I think in many ways what he's going through right now is because she's tried to shelter him from what's about to occur, because she hasn't been able to be. As important as the belief has been, both perhaps for her and him in terms of surviving this far, the fact that it has been a fiction has meant that he's never been able to confront it until literally creating this separate entity to be able to do so. I guess with what you asked, I, I think the book did an impressively good job in what it was meant to do, which is make you emotionally connect with the the main character. And I guess I have not very similar parallel experiences, but like I very much understand the thing, like not dealing with things or sort of having a more flat response to, to something traumatic. Right. And and so, like, I, I appreciate and understand at least some of the things that he's going through. And I guess I, I wanted a little bit more of the, you need to reach out and, you know, bottling things up isn't okay, mm -hmm. but also lashing out isn't okay. And, and it just, I don't know, it just bothers me that that's not... A little more at the forefront because I feel like it's it's of such a common response mm -hmm. that people have, and that normalizing it just I feel like does a disservice to to everybody involved. No, I would very much agree, and it was one of the things that when I read the book, I was what disconcerted me the most was the violence by which the character responded with the world. I don't I don't fully agree with you that the book is accepting it. But I would, in many ways, say that if it is, it would be as much a condemnation on society about how 
it is literally codified into the supposed five stages of grief that you're expected to be angry. It, that is perhaps a necessary emotional response, but as the book itself says on various times, it's not necessarily healthy for the person to just breeze over it as being acceptable and normal because of what they're going through. That treating them as a person, treating them as somebody that is deserving of being treated as normal may be a much more healthier way of helping them cope. Yeah. That having someone just literally acknowledge you and see you and treat you as normal in a world, even if it isn't, can be a much more uh, supportive way of going about things than just simply treating them as if they are uh, so fragile that if you actually respond to them normally, they'll shatter. But I think, I mean, I, I, I agree fully with you about how it very effectively embodies a lot of the things I have felt or gone through during some of my black moments. Um, particularly with the idea of forcing away those around you in terms of your depression, about how dealing with depression, dealing with grief can all, as said, the worst way you can ever go about it is to do it by yourself, but the seemingly most natural pull of it is to isolate yourself from others. I mean, and I can sort of understand that from both sides. It's like, if you care about people, you don't want to bring them down. Mm -hmm. But, but if you don't let them in, they hurt because they can see what's happening to you. Oh yeah, it's it's again. This book is itself a cone on the subject of grief, and I think it's a very fascinating book because of that. Um, in term, man, there is so much more we can talk about. I think we've now talked for about two hours straight, and I feel yep. like that we can easily put another two hours into this thing and enjoy doing it. So, uh, and on that yep. happy note. <laughs> You up for another week, BJ? Can we talk about this one for another one? Oh, yeah. No, I, I think we have at least one more week. Um, and, you know, if we can find the movie, maybe even two. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and yeah, we can... Uh... You, you, mentioned, you mentioned Irish. Uh, isn't Liam Neeson himself the monster in the movie adaptation? Yeah, I, I think you mentioned that. That would sort of be the, the perfect um, cap to it. Well, I mean, as said, folks, we... Hope you enjoyed our kind of philosophical exploring of a very emotional and fraught book. Um, we got plenty more to talk about, both with uh, interpreting the actual aspects of the story, as well as just interpreting our own explorations of grief, which uh, we've certainly got a lot to share on all of those points. But if you have any questions that you'd like pondered, if you have your own experience that you'd like to discuss, BJ, tell them how. Uh, on our website, uh, mangumtalks.com, we have a contact us link, I believe, at the top right. You can also uh, find us on Reddit. Uh, we have our own subreddit, Mangum Talks, that has all of our content, but we uh, post each one of our episodes, and you're more than welcome to submit any comments and questions you have there as well. Um, and pretty much everything that we do hopefully ends up on iTunes and Stitcher and wherever you get podcasts. And, um, yeah, you can find also our other stuff. Um, Spencer and one of our friends, Lee, does a, do a Game of Thrones podcast. Uh, we just started out sort of uh, drinking whiskey and hanging out and just discussing sort of whatever comes to mind and, and sort of reconnecting our friendship uh, with whiskey on the weekends. And then there's some other stuff that's supposedly in the works. So um, if you want to join us for any of those other things, uh, please find our stuff there. Well said. And 
folks, we'll be around next week to discuss Monster Calls in further detail, and thereafter to explore whatever other books come to mind. But on that point, BJ, uh, I think you actually had a few recommendations for what we would uh, consider doing in two or three weeks from now for our next book. Yeah, um, so we kind of have to decide at some point how we want to do this, but there are two trilogies that... Um, I think would be a lot of fun to, to really discuss. Um, and it might be a little harder to do our sort of normal setup, but um, one of them is the Reckoners trilogy by Brandon Sanderson. Um, it's a little bit more on the young adult side. It's a little bit post-apocalyptic, some superpowers and things like that. Um, I've read the first two out of three books and they're fairly fun. Brandon Sanderson always does uh, really impressive job of uh, world building. Um, he's a little bit lighter on the characters, I would say, but, you know, a really impressive world and, and how the magic or superpowers work in his, um, in the world. And then the other one um, is We Are Legion. Um, and then in parentheses, We Are Bob. It's by Dennis Taylor. Um, it's another trilogy that's a little bit more of uh, sci-fi, space exploration, a little bit of a space opera, but I think has some some wonderful touching moments that that you would particularly enjoy. And so um, I, I like doing either of those, um, or maybe something else if we want to go a little bit shorter and not do do a trilogy. Um, but I sort of wanted to figure out what what you wanted to read because I know that where you are and 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 what your mindset is really colors the books that you read, as, as sort of I mentioned with our Guards Guards reading. And it's because of what we did with Guards Guards that I don't I don't fear the idea of us just doing one book of a trilogy and maybe even leaving it big. Because we started with the eighth book in a 41-book series, and that was probably <laughs> enough for right now with that one. I mean, with, with Sanderson, we read the first book of, uh, what was it, Legion? Yep. And we may eventually go back to it, but there's no immediate rush to do so. In terms of what I'm properly in the mood for, um, you know, I may be a little bit burned off young adult for a while. As much as I enjoy Monster Calls, it can be a bit of a scalding experience to go through that kind of genre of growing up every now and then. A nice space opera, explore, exploring scenes of exploration in science fiction might be lovely right now. So uh, that sounds good. So we are Legion, we are Bob. Um, the, the trilogy is called the Bobiverse, which is terrible. <laughs> There are a That's lot of, of good, bad jokes that, that the uh, author has. It's by Dennis Taylor, and I'll post information about that. I would love to see that you are able to put it down after the first book. That would impress me. <laughs> we will see. We will see. Well, for next week, folks, we will be talking about Monster Calls once again, going into a deeper dive into some of the characters, some of the themes, and our responses to them. We look forward to your questions, we look forward to your comments, and we look forward to you listening to us again come next week. BJ, until then. Sounds good, and uh, keep reading.